the show that rewards the one who can best misuse Bible verses. Let's meet our contestants. Now, Helen, it says here that your favorite thing about the Bible is using it to make yourself seem right. Tell us about that. Yes, well, I just get so much joy knowing how proud God is of me, and I use scripture so that everyone will know it. <laughs> that brings us to Doug. He enjoys asking intelligent questions and rational thought. Doug, tell us why you're a downer. I'm not a downer. I'm not a downer. I just don't think verses should be used uh, by... Uh, don't judge me or you two will be judged. Oh, double points oh. for both rudely interrupting and misusing scripture. <laughs> for that, Helen gets to use all of her stone-slinging skills to throw Bible verses at Doug's face. <laughs> hey, well, it looks like it. Helen is extending her lead, but when it comes to misusing scripture, it's anybody's game here on... <laughs> We'll be back after this sermon from a pastor. <laughs> I think one of my favorite parts about that video is the game show um, host. Uh, that just it just screams '80s game show to me. I don't know why. I just I go back to like Love Connection, all that kind of stuff. Anyway. If you have a Bible this morning, open up to Matthew chapter 7, and uh, we are continuing our series entitled Twisted, and uh, in this series we've been, uh, we've already talked last week, and we're going to talk this week about uh, the most misused, uh, misapplied, misunderstood Bible verses that seemingly people like to use to uh, take out of context or, and or misapply and use them for whatever personal reason, maybe personal gain, or to seem better. And so we're going to get into another uh, a verse today, a passage today, that I truly believe will uh, hopefully help give you wisdom and insight into how you're using the Word of God, and how the Word of God wants to speak into your life. And so before I do that, I do want to share another announcement I almost forgot. Um, this morning, uh, we had somebody volunteer to bring in, during our connection time, uh, usually our connection stuff is like coffee, uh, tea, uh, things like that. Um, in the winter, it's more hot chocolate. Uh, and there's not really much for kids. If you bring kids the connection, there's not things that they're really going to want to drink. And if your 8-year-old wants a cup of coffee, you say no, okay? Um, if you give your 8-year-old a cup of coffee, they have to sit with you through church. They can't go to junior church, okay? Because that's just not fair. That's just playing dirty right there. Um, but no, uh, we had somebody offer to bring in uh, like white milk, chocolate milk, juice boxes, um, and so this morning, I don't know if you noticed that in the uh, fellowship hall, there was a little area set up right when you walk in. There's a table with some different things on it. There's also, uh, there was like some muffins and some more kid-friendly things that way too as far as uh, breakfast kind of items. And so I uh, want to let you know that if, you, if your kids come or your grandkids come, come out a little early. And I, they're more than welcome to enjoy that stuff. Um, we're just so excited to have that available to them. And so we're so thankful for that opportunity. And so as I said... Um, this morning we're continuing our series called Twisted, and uh, I may have given you an example from the words of the Apostle Paul last week, uh, which I hope no one went home and applied. I hope nobody applied what I told them last week from the Apostle Paul. And you might be thinking, what are you talking about? Well, I already heard a couple text messages were sent um, in regards to this. I, I referenced that an example of misusing the Bible, if you're kind of like, what does that even mean to misuse the Bible? How can you do that? The Apostle Paul says that when you get married, you become one flesh. Okay, so the Bible is very clear. Husband and wife are one flesh. And then later Paul says that I beat my flesh daily. And so one could conclude then, if you take the Bible out of context, that because Paul said we're one flesh and I beat my flesh, that I can beat my spouse. That, that was a joke, okay? If anybody went home and did this and said, well, the pastor said, okay, no, bad. Okay, don't do that anymore. Stop what you're doing, okay? We don't want Bill to visit your home in uniform, okay? Any kind of arrest to take place, okay? We just want to keep that all kind of on the up and up. And so, but I heard a couple texts that were sent this week. But that was an example. And, you know, I was looking around this morning. I don't see any bruises on anybody, so I think everyone's good here. And so I see some people not here this morning, so I hope it's not because they're in custody somewhere. So that's what I'm, I'm hoping that they're all right. Uh, also, we looked at an example of uh, misusing verses by watching the example of the Bible lady who has a Bible verse for everything. You guys remember that? How many of you guys enjoyed that little video we showed last week if you were here? Okay. Uh, John Christ is the comedian's name, and he did a video called uh, the Bible, or a lady who has a Bible verse for everything. 
And she, he's kind of imitating a woman's voice, and he's going around different places in the mall, I believe, and putting scriptures where they really don't belong. It's kind of ironic. I went to the mall uh, Friday, and we walked by uh, Starbucks and some other places, and it was just coming back to my mind. You know, streams in the desert and things like that. And so I was curious to think about what would happen if the Bible verse lady went to Vegas. Like, what kind of verses could, could he use there? And so check out the short video, The Bible Lady Goes to Vegas. Look at this pyramid. Mmm, let my people go. Oh, virgin daiquiris, my cup overflows. Oh, look how she is clothed, not in strength and dignity. Look at all these people gambling. Borrower is slave to the lender. Don't you dare even look at it. We do not swear in this house. Oh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What? Stop it, Brenda. Mm, it's not a want, it's a need. Tattoos and piercings, absolutely not. My body is a temple. Escalator broken, please use stairs. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Look at this beautiful city. Oh, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Uh, no thank you, I will not be going into this hotel. Thou shall have no other gods before me. Oh, what do we have here? Mm, he's got the whole world in his hands. Oh, love this. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Look at this roaring lion. My God is not dead, he is surely alive. Those aren't the angels that visited Jesus, I'll tell you that. Oh, Disney? Absolutely not. They produced Beauty and the Beast, and we are boycotting that. Thank you. Two parts about that video that kind of scare me. One, did you notice how Mickey tried to catch him? Like, what was that about? Like, that was kind of scary. I, I'm a little afraid of that. So... But I want to continue on this morning talking about how we've got to be careful as believers, as followers of Christ, that we don't take the Bible out of context, that we don't misuse the Word of God to just apply it wherever we want to try to apply it. And last week, I gave you some kind of highlights, some, some tools, some basic keys to understanding the Bible. And so I believe that's in your notes. If you're taking notes this morning, I do encourage that. Um, the first thing we talked about last week was I gave you three kind of keys to understanding the Bible. How do I interpret the Bible correctly? How do I understand what this says and then take what it says and apply it to my life? I love the song that, that Laura sang about questions and answers. Does anybody ever have some questions that you never had answered? You pray about something and Jesus never answers the question? Okay, we've all been there, okay? Sometimes it's not the answer you need to be worried about, it's the question. What question are you asking? Well, how do I know what questions to ask? How do I know what to pray about and even how to ask God to lead me and guide me? I have to be in His Word. And through the Word of God, He's going to begin to reveal to me what He wants me to pray and how I can begin to see God in my life as far as how He changes my heart. And so I have knowledge and wisdom from the Word of God to then pray and ask the right questions. I can have an understanding of, God, what is your will for my life? The Bible's pretty clear. It says, pray without ceasing. So I can't say to somebody, well, I know the Bible says pray without ceasing over there, but I don't believe it's a gift of mine for prayer. I don't believe that I'm a prayer warrior. I don't believe that God really expects me to pray like he expects you to pray. No, the Bible's pretty clear. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all situations, for this is the will of God according, or in Christ Jesus. So what is the will of God for my life? If I know nothing else, I know what I need to give thanks. I need to give thanks to God for what he's allowing me to go through in my life, the good and even the rough situations. And so we need to see these kind of principles apply, but how do I even know that? I need to go to the Word of God. I need to go into the Word of God and say, what does God have for me today? But when I go to the Word of God, how do I understand what I'm reading? How do I understand how to apply this to my life? Three keys, real quick. They're in your notes. Understanding the context. Understanding the context. We talked about it last week. You need to read through the passage. Ask some observational questions. What's going on in this chapter? Who's writing this chapter? Who's receiving this information? Why was this written? Is there a theme to this text? Is there a principle here I need to see? Is there a pattern that I see repeating itself through this passage? We understand the context. And unfortunately, I don't have time to get into all of that this morning again. But I encourage you, you can go online. You can find the sermon online there. Or you can get the CD if you'd like to do it that way. If you'd like the whole series on a CD, um, you can wait till the CD or the series is over. And just fill out the little pink envelope at the Welcome Center. And you can get the whole CDs like a little box set. Okay? But I don't have time to go into all of that this morning. But I encourage you, check out last week's sermon to hear more about 
what we mean by understanding the context. Secondly, we need to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. If we don't know what passage is referring to, we do a little study and we find, is there a sister passage, is what people call it, a Bible verse maybe in another gospel. So if we're in Matthew and we read a passage and we're like, well, I don't really get what's going on here, maybe Luke or Mark repeat that same passage in a different perspective, and now you can read that and get a little bit more idea of what's going on here. Or even if it's something that the Apostle Paul wrote and we're not understanding, well, what did Jesus say about this same principle? So we understand the context. We use Scripture to interpret Scripture. And thirdly, we apply what we read or what we learn. You apply what you've learned. We've said it last week. Bible study without application is pointless. Let me say that again. Bible study without application is pointless. Now you might say, the Bible says the word shall not return void. That's right. God will use it in your life, but he's wanting you to apply what you're reading and what you're learning. To live it out. To actually show the fruit that he is working in you. And so I believe that as you're reading the word of God, one of the questions you need to ask is, after you ask who wrote this and why did they write it and what does it mean, the next question you'd ask is, now what do I do with what I've read? If you're doing your own Bible study, a couple questions you can ask. What is it saying and what do I do about it? Real simple. What is it saying and what do I do about it? If Jesus is talking about prayer or giving or sacrificing time for others or serving others, and I read a passage about serving others and I'm like, that's awesome. It's so cool to learn what Jesus did, but I never go out and actually ask, okay, now what do I do about this example of service? Maybe God wants me to go serve someone else. And so I take the example I read in the life of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, and I go out and I live it out in this world so that God is glorified and that his name is magnified. Understand the context, use scripture to interpret scripture, and apply what you've learned. I truly believe that the best way to understand the Bible is using a literal form of interpretation. Now that doesn't mean that everything in the Bible is literal. What I mean by that is if it's a metaphor, we take it as a metaphor. If it's historical fact, we take it as historical fact. So for example, in my opinion, and I, I have no reason to doubt this, I go through the scripture with you after service if you have questions about this. I 100% affirm that God created everything in six days exactly according to Genesis. And I believe that because Genesis is not metaphor, it's historical narrative. It's story form revealing historical fact. How do we know this? We go through the rest of Scripture and even up to Jesus. Jesus was asked about marriage. And what did Jesus quote? Jesus quoted Genesis 2.24. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. When Jesus quoted that to his audience, he wasn't quoting metaphor or illustratively. He was quoting a book that's considered historical fact among the Jewish people. So if Jesus quoted it as history, the audience received it as historical fact, then how should I treat the book of Genesis then if I'm keeping it in context? Historical fact. Well, well, but it doesn't make sense. It's not common sense. I don't understand how God can do that. You not being able to understand how God can do something doesn't make it not true. It makes you not God. Well, I don't believe God could create the world in six days. Really, have you, have, you have a problem with Jesus being raised from the dead? Do you have a problem with Jesus raising others from the dead? Do you have a problem with, with the sun being stopped in the sky for a battle for hours and hours and hours and hours? Nobody debates these, but that whole state thing, I don't really know if God could do that. Raising from the dead, conquering nature, conquering creation, showing his power over death and hell, walking on water, defying the laws of physics. We have no problem with those. But God's speaking things into existence. I just don't know if that makes sense scientifically. Do you see how we have to, we got to stop doing this. We do it to ourselves. Well, what does it matter what I believe about creation? It matters a lot what you believe about what the Bible says. Now, if you're here and you're of a different camp and you don't necessarily believe that it was a literal six-day creation, a literal 24-hour day, we're not going to fight about that. We're not going to argue about that. But I believe that if we're going to take the Bible in context, we have to do a better job of understanding what does the Bible actually say. And then live that out. And do it unapologetically. Don't make excuses for it. Live out what the Bible says. Ask questions. Study. Study to show yourself approved. Rightly dividing what? The word of truth. Knowing what is error and what is truth will only be easy and obvious when we know the truth. 
But if you don't know the truth, you're like those in the New Testament that were easily led astray with Jewish fables and, and mystical ideas and just stories. You've got to know and be planted in the Word of God. We have to discover what it means and what it meant to the original audience, to the author, so that we can best apply it to our life today. So, understanding all of that, I want to jump into our text for today. And I promise you I will do my best to get through everything today. I'm going to do my best. I'm not making a promise we're going to do it. I'm making you a promise that I will do my best to get through it. Okay, so it's on the recording. I'm doing my best. Matthew chapter 7, look at verse 1. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. I'm going to ask that we bow in a quick word of prayer and ask the Lord to give us wisdom as we read his word. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Father, thank you for your grace in our lives, your eternal and constant love. Your desire that anyone that would call upon the name of Christ would be saved. I pray that you would show us your grace today. Father, if anybody in this room right now doesn't know you as their Savior, I pray that before they leave this place, that they would allow you, Holy Spirit, to work in their life, to convict them of sin and righteousness, as your word says you will, and that they would respond to you favorably, opening their heart to you and receiving you as their Savior. Father, I pray that you would work as we work through this text today. Give us your wisdom. Give us your understanding. Help us understand what it is to be a follower of Christ and to live that example before others, that you would be glorified and you alone. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. There it is. Verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. That is, in my opinion, the number one verse quoted by people that want to do something that they know is wrong, and they don't want you telling them it's wrong. Let me just say that again. I believe it's the number one verse quoted by people who are doing what they know to be wrong, or that is wrong, and they don't want you to tell them it's wrong, so they just say, judge not lest you be judged. And they throw it out there. And they use it to excuse what they're doing or to validate what they're doing as though somehow you can't judge me. And most Christians will look at that and go, well, man, I, you know, I, I want to be like Jesus. And so I can't judge. And so I'll just let them keep doing what they're doing, keep sinning and not say anything because, well, I, I want to be like Jesus. And Jesus wouldn't judge them. But is that true? Is it true that Jesus wouldn't make a judgment over them? I truly believe that the answer is no. Jesus would make a judgment over them. Or that, yes, he would, sorry. Would he, would he ignore it and let it go? No. Would he make a judgment? Yes. You know how I know this to be true? Because I see it all throughout Scripture. How about flipping the tables over in the temple? What did he do before he flipped the tables over? He made a judgment that they were not doing what they needed to be doing in the house of God. And so he reacted to the judgment with conviction and a consequence. How about calling the Pharisees tombs and fools? How about when Jesus said, go and sin no more to the woman that was caught in adultery? Go and sin no more. If he's saying sin no more, what is he judging that she was doing before that point? Sinning. What is he assuming she's going to potentially do from that point forward? Sin, or at least be tempted to sin. And he's saying, don't sin. Those are judgment decisions. Those are judgment calls. I truly believe that we need to understand that Jesus would make a judgment, but... This is where we have to understand Scripture. What do we need to understand about judging? There's some things that we need to put into our, our minds and into our practice about what do we need to understand about judgments. And as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, when and how and in what way should I judge someone else? Are there times that I don't judge and other times that I do judge? And what does that look like? And I truly believe that so many Christians, we battle with this constantly. We want to be like Christ. We want to love like Christ loved. We want to show grace and compassion. But I'm telling you, we can do that and still make judgments. You can still be very gracious and make a judgment. I truly believe they are not other ends of the spectrum. I don't think you can either A, show grace, or B, hold people accountable. I believe you can do both if you are focused on what Jesus taught. I want to look at what Jesus says about judging. Look at chapter 7, verse 3 through verse 5. I truly hope this is helpful to you in your practical Christian life, understanding how do I handle these situations in my Christian life. Look at verse 3. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, the beam is in mine eye? 
currently, present tense. Verse 5, thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast the mote out of thy brother's eye. So Jesus speaks on judging here, but I want to give a little bit of background here. This is a powerful message. So in your notes there, uh, letter A under the first point, a powerful message. A powerful message. Jesus was, in fact, the greatest teacher to ever live. Amen? The greatest teacher to ever live. He used various forms of teaching methods. Some of you have teachers in school that used different forms of teaching and it engaged you, right? Some of you guys had teachers that did visual illustrations and that just, like, for some reason, you were just all about it. When they would lecture and lecture, you'd just kind of be like, okay, whatever, I don't really care. But they'd put a visual up there or a video or some kind of, maybe for some of you, an overhead, depending on when you went to school. Um, we're not going to get into that too much, but uh, so they, they did these visual things and it engaged you. And you thought, oh, now, now I get it. Some of you guys were hands-on people. How many of you are hands-on learners? Like you want to get your hands on it to learn what to do with it. Okay. Like if you were being shown how to rebuild something, you're not going to stand there and want to watch it be done. You're going to want to then get your hands on it so you can figure it out that way. Some of you had teachers that did that, that engaged you in, in practical lessons or, or in, in uh, experiments in class. Maybe science class or something. You were just like, oh, that's so cool. I get to pour this and this and boom, everything blows up. It's awesome. Okay. There's various kinds of teaching methods, and Jesus demonstrated various forms of teaching in his sermons and his illustrations, from physical illustrations to logical debate, and even as well as humor, which made him an intriguing and engaging teacher to his followers. This is an example of Jesus using humor. There's an irony here. There's a humor in this text. I've said it before. Could you, I mean, think about this literally. A guy's got a piece of sawdust in his eye. Another guy's got a two-by-four in his eye. And he walks up to the guy with the sawdust and says, hey, you got, you got a little something in your eye right there. Can, you, can, I get, can I get that out for you? And you're the guy with the sawdust, and you're thinking, dude, you've got a two-by-four in your eye, and you're worried about me and this little bitty sawdust. It's humorous. It's, it's not meant literal in the sense of literal. the guy literally had a stick in his eye. It's, it's a form of humor and understanding that. So why would Jesus, Jesus use this illustration because he wants them to understand a very serious point, but he's using humor to kind of soften the ice, kind of, kind of soften the crowd up a little bit. This passage in Matthew chapter 7 falls towards the end of a massive sermon that Jesus taught called the Sermon on the Mount. It is one of the most powerful and convicting sermons that Jesus ever shared. Matthew seven twenty eight expresses the people's response to this massive sermon this is what the people said. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine or teaching. The people in the audience were blown away by just the Sermon on the Mount. It goes from Matthew chapter 5 verse 1 all the way to the end of Matthew chapter 7. And it deals with all different kinds of topics, various things involved there. You see, it wasn't just a powerful message that Jesus pre preached. It was a practical message that Jesus preached. It had practical implications to their very life. This sermon deals with various issues as well as judging from giving, praying, fasting, materialism, divorce, and even remarriage. Jesus tackles all these things in one sermon. You know those people that say, oh, Jesus would just want everyone around. He wouldn't really care what you believe as long as you're sincere. Jesus never demonstrated that in his life. He preached messages with the sole purpose of weaning out those that really didn't believe. Think about this. He says at one point, you want to follow me? Awesome. Pick up your cross and let's go die on that hill together. And what did people do? I'm out. I didn't sign up for that. I just want you to make my life better. I got saved so you would make my life better. I don't actually want to do anything. I don't actually want to be held accountable to anything. I just received your love and your grace and your salvation because I just don't want to go to hell and I want a cushy life. Jesus said, if you look back, you're not fit to serve in the kingdom. Jesus said, if you want to know me, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And he said it to a people group that saw that as the worst thing you can do is eating something unclean. And he says, hey, you want to follow me? You want to be my disciple? Man, I'd love for you to follow me. But here's what you got to do. You got to do it my way. You got to be my disciple. 
You don't get to pick and choose when you're my disciple and when you're your own disciple. You see, Jesus preached. If you read the, the, the Sermon on the Mount and you don't get convicted, I would be strongly impressed. Man, it's powerful when you realize. And there's some things in the Sermon on the Mount that he was kind of telling them, you can't do this without me, and you can't do that without me. That's really the point of it. You won't live righteously without me. You won't be able to understand prayer without me. You won't understand the point of fasting without me. You won't understand the point of judging and judging right without me and my Holy Spirit. He's teaching them and showing them you need me. I'll give you an example. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You have heard that it hath been said, thou, sh thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That is not how we look at it today. So many Christians are like, hey, I love you, but if you do anything against me, I'm coming at you. Don't, don't get me mad. Don't betray me, because then I'm not going to believe you anymore. I'm not going to love you anymore. It's so conditional. And in one sermon, towards the beginning of his ministry, think about this. Jesus is laying a foundation for his ministry, and he preaches the hardest sermon ever to lay a foundation for what he's going to teach them later on. Why would he do that? Because he's showing them, you really need to understand, you are so far off. You're so far off base, you need to understand what I can bring to the table and what I can do through you and for you. His audience, being primarily Jewish, are struggling to understand the connection between the law of Moses and the ministry of Jesus. Moses taught this. This is what the prophet said. And now this Jesus shows up. How do these two connect? Some people say, well, Jesus was the anti-law. No, Jesus fulfilled the law. Jesus took care of the law. He met every one of the commands so that we don't have to because we can't. Jesus was an anti-law, anti-Moses. That doesn't make sense. God never goes against his own word. He was showing them, you can't do this. You need me because I fulfilled the law. But he's doing this and he's speaking specifically to this audience. Jesus was destroying an entire way of living to be able to lay a new foundation of himself and his sacrifice on the cross. He's removing an old way of living and thinking and replacing it. Fulfilling the law and then replacing it with a new covenant, the Bible says. So in understanding this passage, and understanding a little bit more about Matthew chapter 7, the audience, the timeline, the point of the text, maybe now we can get a little bit understanding of what Jesus is teaching us in Matthew chapter 7. So now that we understand the background, let's answer the question in your notes, what is clear about judging? What is clear about judging? So letter A under point 2. What is clear about judging? We never judge superficially. We never judge superficially. We cannot judge at a distance and expect it to be effective. Look for a way to build relationship, to, to foster a connection, and then through that relationship, express and show your words of love for them. And when times of criticism need to come, godly criticism, loving encouragement, support and accountability, there's an understanding between you and this person that this is all based in love. This is all based in love. Not in criticism, just to criticize. Not in accusations to tear you down. No, no, i am showed you already. I love you. I care for you. I want to support and encourage you. I've said it before. A critic tells you what you need to hear so you'll be more like them. A coach tells you what you need to hear so you'll be the best you you can ever be. Now put that in context of, of, of Christianity. I believe a Christian mentor, a Christian discipler, somebody that comes alongside as a brother or sister in Christ and is pointing you to Jesus, they're going to be a coach in your life. And listen, if you have a coach or a mentor that only tells you what you want to hear, get a different coach, get a different mentor because they're not really pointing you to Jesus. I want a coach and I've got some men in my life. That I, want, I want them to come around me and say, man, listen, I, I kind of noticed this is kind of lacking in your life. They don't say it in criticism or critique or to tear down. It's all in love. Why? Because they desire that I be the strongest Christian I can be. The most like Jesus I can be. But a critic, I've had critics in my life. You've had critics in your life. Some people think they can speak into your life just because they want to. You don't have to give everybody who wants to speak into your life the room to do so. Let me say that again. Just because if somebody wants to speak into your life doesn't mean you should allow them to speak into your life. 
Guard who you give your influence to. For a long time, I used to get these letters in the mail. And they would just rip me up one side and down the other. Up and down, up and down. Face-to-face, hardly any kind of communication, but all these letters. Underlined articles, highlighted things, telling me how I should live and all this. No relationship. It's just, I want you to be like me. I want you to be like what I think you should be like. And so after a while of reading those letters, I finally realized, why am I putting myself through this? I used to think, oh, there's a nugget of truth in there. I'll find the nugget of truth, and then I'll, I'll be all right. I'll find the small morsel of food in there among all this junk. And then I heard a sermon illustration where a guy said, if I was really, really hungry, I'd go to the grocery store and buy something good. I wouldn't go to the trash can and hope I found something to eat. And some of us are digging through trash cans of stuff that people send us, and you need to let that go and move on. You need to go to people that are going to give you good things from the Word of God. Stop sifting through criticism and critique from a critic so that you hope you find something good. Man, we need to judge not superficially, but through a relationship of understanding love for one another. I mean, that's the body of Christ. We're supposed to be connected and and, and involved in each other's life. You're not going to be everyone's best friend, but you need to be connected to the point where if you see something in someone's life, a brother or sister in Christ, and they're struggling in a sin, and you want to help them, don't just go and the first thing you say be critical or criticism. Go in love. We'll talk about that in a little bit there. But build that relationship. Allow them to see your love for them. John 7, 24 is clear. Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. I want to read that again. Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. It's an interesting spectrum that, that is laid out for us. Judging by what it looks like versus judging righteously, or as the word means, approved and acceptable of God. Those type of judgments. But what does the verse not tell us? The verse does not say, don't judge. It doesn't say that. It says, judge not by the appearance, but judge righteously. So is Jesus going against what he's teaching in Matthew 7 when he says, judge not lest you be judged? No. I'll get to that in a moment. He's showing us it's the heart of the one doing the judging. It's the heart of the one and the motivation of why are you going to your brother and sister in Christ. So we never judge superficially. We judge through relationship. But letter B in your notes, we never judge hypocritically. We never judge hypocritically. Matthew 7, 4 and 5 says this, O will thou... Or, or how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the mote of thine own eye, and behold, a beam is thine own eye. Thou hypocrite. Thou hypocrite, Jesus says. I don't know about you, but when, if Jesus calls me a hypocrite, I'm kind of nervous. I'm like, oh man, what did I do? Thou hypocrite. First cast out the beam of thine own eye, then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote of thy brother's eye. Before you can get to your brother or sister and encourage them in a sin issue they have fallen into, first, we must allow the Holy Spirit to cleanse our heart of any sin issue. This does not mean that we must be perfect, because only Jesus is perfect. But what it means is that we confess any sins we are currently struggling with, so that we will not come arrogantly to our brother and sister in Christ, but graciously, understanding that we all battle in some way, we all have struggles, so I'm not going because I'm better than them. I'm going to them because I desire to see Christ glorified in them and them receive the fullness of his blessings. Doesn't make sin okay, but it means we need each other for help. I want to make sure we're clear on this. We don't judge hypocritically. And you might say, well, everybody's got something. That's true. We all battle. So what I do is I go in love and grace and I pray and I say, God, remove anything in me. I confess anything in me. Cleanse my heart. What did David say? Search me and try me and see if there be any wicked way in me. It's this open relationship between you and the Father and you're just desiring that closeness, that intimacy. And you're praying, God, wash me and cleanse me and remind me of your grace. Remind me of your love. Remind me of your sacrifice on the cross. And as I understand all of that now, that my eyes, if you will, are clean. Now I can go to my sister and brother graciously, understanding that I need grace just as much as them. And I don't go arrogantly or to beat them up. I go lovingly and humbly that I might serve them, honor them. The Bible goes on to say in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 and 4. We don't have time to turn there. But I encourage you, I think it might be in your notes there. Read that later. Shares with us that we must be aware of our own actions and our own hearts. And allow the Spirit to lead us to repentance long before we worry about someone else. 
I hope this is making sense. We don't judge superficially at a distance. We judge through relationship. But we don't judge hypocritically in arrogance and pride. We go humbly, loving that person, confessing our own sin first, asking God to cleanse us and to show us what we need to do. And I truly believe sometimes we think somebody needs to be addressed or approached on something, and then we get our own hearts right, and then we realize, oh wait, it's, it was more me, not them. It was me, not them. I needed to get some stuff taken care of. And once you get the beam out of your eye, you realize that wasn't really even a moat in their eye. It was perceived because your issues. So we have to start here first. We have to look in the mirror and say, God, reveal to me. Renew a right thinking in me. Renew my mind, my thinking through the Holy Spirit that I would know what your will is in this situation. So I don't judge superficially. I don't judge hypocritically. But let her see in your notes, I never hold non-Christians Christian standards. I never hold non-Christians to Christian standards. This happens and we don't even realize we're doing it, in my opinion, in the Christian world. We can fall into thinking, how is this not common sense? How do the people in the world not get that this is wrong, whatever it is? How do they not get this? I mean, it's obvious this is wrong, black and white. But the problem is we live in a culture that isn't black and white. We live in a culture that is a lot of gray. There is no absolute understanding of right and wrong. It's whatever feels good, do it. Whatever you want to do, do it. As long as you're not hurting anyone else, what's the big deal? And the problem is there's not scriptural. We don't have gray area. It's black or right. It's right or wrong. Now in that, we might have some gray area and some wiggle room, but I believe the Holy Spirit will give us wisdom in that. But in the world today, guess what? If they don't have the Holy Spirit, they don't understand that. If they don't know Christ personally, they don't, they're not working with the same basis, the same foundation. So what do we do? We don't hold them to Christian standards. We don't judge them based on the Christian understanding of life and right and wrong. We go to them as an unbeliever. We show grace and love, and we just share Christ. And we watch God use it to build something in them. Paul speaks of this mindset in 1 Corinthians 5, 12 through 13. 1 Corinthians 5, 12 through 13. This is what Paul says. For what have I to do... Or what have I to do to judge them also that are without, without being outside the church, unbelievers? Do not you judge them that are within, but them that are without, God judges. Therefore, put away, that, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. That's a powerful passage. He says, for what have I to do with that to judge them that also that are without? Do not you judge them that are within the church, believers? But them that are without, God judges. You know what that's telling me? That as a believer, as a follower of Christ, when I see the craziness in our world, which is crazy by the way, and all the sin and all the junk out here, I don't need to go out there and try to judge that and try to condemn them or, or kind of convict them. What I do is I give it over to God. Because the Bible is pretty clear. God will take care of that. God will judge those that need to be judged. It's not my job. But then he says this, do not you judge them that are within. In this context here, talking about context and understanding it, the passage is talking about a man that had an inappropriate relationship with his stepmother. A man in the church had a relationship, intimate relationship with his stepmother who's also in the church. And the church's reaction was, we don't want to say nothing because who are we to judge? And so nothing was even addressed to them, as far as we can tell in the passage. And in fact, they showed them so much grace that they were actually proud of how gracious they were to them. And Paul says, no, 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 time out, time out, time out. The world, yes, we can't judge them because guess what? They don't even know Christ. But in here, a believer knows Christ. And again, it doesn't mean we go to them and we're like, oh, you're a horrible person. I hate you. I can't believe you did this. No, we already talked about that. We go humbly and graciously. But the key is we can't hold a non-Christian to Christian standards. This doesn't mean the actions of a non-Christian are not considered wrong or that in our culture they may suffer legal consequences. The point is when an unbeliever sins, we understand that they are ignorant of the weight of the sin in the spiritual realm. We focus on their need for the sun before they need their behavior changed. The sun will change their behavior better than we can anyway. See, I don't go to somebody in the world and I start labeling all their sins and naming all their sins. I just need to go and say, man, can I introduce you to Jesus Christ? And then let Jesus begin to change them and mold them. Listen, some of you, when you got saved, you did some stupid stuff before you got saved. Can we just be real for a second? Some of you did some stupid stuff after you got saved. 
That's called human nature. I pray you've just repented of that and moved on from that because God's forgiven you for it. Before you got saved, maybe you were into something, and all of a sudden you get saved, and nobody maybe said you got to stop doing A, B, or C. As you were just growing in Christ, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit was like, that's got to go. This has got to change. This has got to be replaced with this. This isn't going to happen anymore. And as you're just kind of reflecting over your life, you're reflecting over those decisions, and you see how the Holy Spirit brought you wisdom and understanding, and as the Bible says, convicted you of sin and righteousness and showed you what it was to follow Christ. Somebody didn't necessarily have to come to you and give you the list of things you had to stop doing. Now, maybe some of, some of you had a discipler that as you were working with them, you would ask questions like, what do you think about this and what do you think about that? And they'd give you biblical answers. Nothing wrong with that. But before you receive Christ, we shouldn't be focusing on don't do this and do do this. That's law. We focus on their need for Christ first. And then once we receive Christ, as a fellow or brother or sister of Christ, now we begin to work together to help each other to become more like Christ. So we never judge superficially. We don't judge at a distance. We don't judge hypocritically. We get our own hearts right. We make sure our eyes are clear. The Bible says it in Matthew chapter 7. It says, it's amazing to me. First, chapter 7 verse 5. First cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the moat out of thy brother's eye. So many people say, hey, ju don't judge me. You can't judge me. You've got a beam in your eye. Well, okay, so now the beam's out. So now what can I do? Go lovingly and graciously to help my brother or sister in Christ get, to get that out of their eye. I don't leave the moat alone and let it fester and become a beam. That's not loving. How is that loving? I've always loved this. I, I never understood this. How is it more loving to let someone that knows Christ continue in sinful, destructive behavior than to go to them in love and say, man, I, this is going to lead to destruction. This is going to lead to just chaos. How is it more loving to let somebody continue in that lifestyle? To me, that's less loving than to go lovingly and say, I want to help you in whatever way I can. I've always loved the illustration. If somebody was driving 100 miles an hour, 100 miles an hour towards a cliff, and they didn't know the cliff was there, and you were in the passenger seat, what's more loving to say, well, I don't want to judge them. I mean, who am I to tell them they can't drive towards a cliff? I don't want to appear unloving. I want to be Jesus-like. So you just let them drive off the cliff, killing you in the process and them. Or is it more loving to say, because I love them and I value them and I want them to live and be fruitful and have a healthy and prosperous life. Hey, listen, maybe we should make a different decision here. <laughs> maybe we should turn before we hit the cliff. You might think, well, that's obvious when it's not kind of situation. Listen, sin is just as destructive. Sin is just as destructive. And what's crazy is people think, well, it's just me. Who are you to judge me? Listen, your sins don't just affect you. Your sins affect your spouse and your children if you have them and your family and your community and your church. It's not just your sin. Show me in the Bible where one person's sin only affected them. It always affected the greater community. That's why God takes sin so seriously. That's why he says, man, I wish you would just realize I've got something so much better. Stop believing these lies of the enemy and of the flesh and just trust me. You don't need that stuff. You don't need to do that. Oh, but it brings me pleasure. It brings me joy. Well, for now it might. But sin is always pleasurable for a season. And we're all in Michigan. How long do seasons last? Who knows? It could be 40 degrees tomorrow. We don't even know. I mean, do you see how this is? We've got to stop thinking the cultural way of thinking. Do you know what culture says? You have no right to tell me what I'm doing is wrong, so don't you dare. And this is not just a world problem. This is a church thing. Not just North Goodland, by the way. I'm not talking about just our little church. I'm talking about church in America today. I can tell you from personal experience, sitting in years ago, nobody is here today that would know what I'm talking I mean, as far as they're not in this church anymore, the people I'm talking about. Sitting in a, in a meeting and hearing things talked about and thinking, this is wrong. The person's not even here to defend themselves. Why are they? They're judging this guy and he's not even in the room. You can't, no, you got to take your offense one-on-one. -on -one. They haven't even done that. Now they're bringing it to before the church. You can't, you're missing two key steps here, according to Matthew. And so I just said, I, I have to interject here. I think we need to stop what we're doing and get that person in this room. And, and somebody else in the room was like, yeah, we need to kind of stop this. What are we doing here? And the person to me said, if you're going to tell me that what I'm doing is wrong, I don't want to hear it. This is a Christian leader, mature in the faith. Because they were older. 
Can I just be real for a second? Just because somebody's old or young doesn't gauge their maturity in the Lord. Now, I praise the Lord for our older people that have loved the Lord and are faithful and have served the Lord and are great testimonies and heritage to their children and grandchildren. Praise God for you. If you're here and you're a grandma and grandpa and you've loved the Lord, you're, you've lived for the Lord, you try to show that grace to your children, your grandchildren, praise God for you. You're needed, by the way. Let me say that again. You're needed. If you've, if you've ever felt like, well, I can't serve in the church anymore, I can't do this anymore, I can't do it anymore, that's garbage and a lie. You are serving the church by loving your children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren with the grace and love of God and just helping them to grow in the maturity of the Lord. Thank you for your heritage. Thank you for what you've done for the Lord. But let me tell you something. A 16-year-old can be very mature in the Lord. A 12-year-old can be mature in the Lord. If we learned anything from the power of God through the Holy Spirit, we've learned that. What does Paul tell Timothy, a young pastor in his 20s? Let no man despise your youth, but be an example in all things. And do we see that this, we need to understand this. It's about loving and, and being gracious to there, but not allowing sin to just go on and on and on because we think that's more loving. And it's not more loving to let somebody make destructive choices in Christ and just put our hands in our pockets and just say, man, I pray for you. Now there's a time and a place for everything. Maybe what you do is you go first and you just listen. Maybe you're just like Job's friends when they did it right and they just sat with him and listened for a couple days. Just quiet. But then maybe there's a point where you need to step up and say, hey, can I, can I talk to you about something? And listen, I, I prayed about this for a while. Man, I, I know I'm not perfect. I know I've made mistakes and I've confessed them and I've asked God to forgive me of them and I'm so thankful that he did. But man, I see these things in your life and I just want you to know, I don't want you to get hurt. Man, I don't want you to go down this road. Man, I believe God's got something better for you. Maybe you, would, you, would you want to turn from this and, and repent and just cry out to God and say, God, show me what you have for me. And how is that not loving? How is that not Christ-like? Jesus never once condoned sin. He never condemned the sinner, but he never condoned sin. And I'm saying the same thing. We don't go after the individual and tear them down but it doesn't mean we let their decisions go without at least some word of scripture, some word of support and encouragement. How often did Paul tell his churches in the epistles, admonish each other, counsel each other, encourage each other. Admonish means to counsel or to lift up, edify, build each other up. So we don't judge non-Christians to Christian standards. But lastly, as I've kind of already gotten into a little bit, getting a little bit ahead of myself. Last point. Letter D. We always help restore fallen believers. We never judge superficially. We never judge hypocritically. We never hold Christ, non-Christians to Christian standards. But we also always help to restore the fallen believers. A key to understanding the point of judgment, if you will, among believers is to help one that has fallen to be restored to an active walk with Christ. Jesus does not say, once you get the beam out of your own eye, leave the guy with the moat alone. Some will say, Jesus was speaking to the Jews, and therefore it does not apply to the church. We talked about context. True or false? Is Jesus primarily speaking to Jews? Yes. So some could say, well, if he's talking to the Jews there, then it doesn't apply to the church because we're not Jews. We're the new covenants. And while I agree that he is speaking to the Jews, and I do agree there are some parts of the Bible that only apply to the Jewish people in context, I believe we see this principle repeated in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Galatians 6 and verse 1, Paul speaking to the church says, Brethren, Christians, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou be tempted. The word fault here in Galatians 6.1 means to fall beside or near something. Let me say that again. Think about what we're talking about here. Christian brother or sister in Christ, love them, relationship, growing in Christ, and all of a sudden they have a fault. They fall beside or near something. A lapse or deviation from the truth and uprightness. A sin, a misdeed. The part I want to focus on is to fall beside. We are all running a race according to the book of Hebrews. And when one falls, we don't criticize. We don't kick them when they're down. We don't mock them because they fell. We don't lap around again and say, I can't believe they're still on their face. We don't go after them. We stop and we do what? We do as much as we can. We work as hard as we can as the Holy Spirit allows to pick the person up. 
This is not complicated stuff, guys. This is pretty straightforward, basic Christianity 101. We help fallen believers back to their feet. But here's the key. If I've fallen and someone comes up, do you ever see this in a basketball game? I don't know if you guys are watching the finals. Crazy finals, by the way, for the NBA finals. Just some really high-energy, high-scoring games. But every now and then a player will get a foul and they'll fall down. If you're LeBron James, you fall down a lot because you just do it. Um, milking those calls. But anyway, a guy falls down. Do you ever notice what happens almost instantly? Someone on his team does what? Stops what they're doing and goes like this. Why? And picks him up. Can the guy get up on his own? He's a grown man. He can get up on his own. But why do they do that? Team, support. Hey, I'm here for you. Can we stop and apply that to the church for just a second? Man, if he walked over and just went, boom, ha ha. I think we'd be like, whoa, what just happened there? That's not a good teammate. Okay, it'd be funny because if it's LeBron on the ground. But anyway, um, just kidding, just kidding. But he helps them up. Do you notice what people on the other team usually don't do? They don't usually help them up. They just keep doing what they're doing. I saw it the other night. Guy got fouled so hard, slammed on the floor. Guy in their team stepped over him more or less, passed the ball to another guy, and he shot it on the other team. Oh, that's bad sportsmanship. I don't know. He's not on his team. Let his team pick him up. So here's the point. If somebody in the church falls and we don't pick him up, the other team isn't going to pick him up. But what happens if I walk over to pick up my teammate and I put my arm out and he just, nope, nope, I don't want to be picked up and just lays there. Can I, I'm not going to force him back to his feet, right? Well, I'm here for you whenever you're ready. You just let me know. So here's the key. We work as hard as we can as the church, as the body of Christ, as Christians, to help up a fallen believer. But if the fallen believer says, I'm just content to lay here, it is what it is. We can't force them. They have to choose to say, okay, yes, I've fallen and I need help. Remember those old commercials? I've fallen and I can't get up. Some of you are like, that's not as funny as it used to be to me when I was younger. Okay? Every single one of us has fallen in our faith, maybe fell recently in our faith, or we're potentially tempted to at least then fall tomorrow. That's why Paul says, be wary of yourself, lest you be tempted and given to the same sin. And if someone falls, we do everything we can to pick them up. Some will say, it's none of my business. We're in a day and age today where people want to get it on their phones, on camera, and put it on YouTube before we'll stop to help somebody. It drives me crazy. See this video on YouTube of someone getting beat up, and the person videotaping it doesn't go over to help, just stands there and films it. Like, where have we, how have we gotten so seared in our conscience that that's okay? When is it ever okay to willingly submit and allow evil to take place in front of you and just go, well, it's none of my business? Like, where have we come as a culture that that's like normal? You go back 50, 60 years, guess what? Somebody would have been stepping up and stepping in. Now every now and then you hear a story about somebody stepping up and doing the right thing. But man, I just, it blows me away. We just put our hands in our pockets. It's not my business. Who am I to judge? Who am I to judge? What does Paul say in Galatians 6? He says, you which are spiritual. You know what that phrase really means? This blew, blew me away when I realized this. Here's what that phrase means. You which are spiritual or you who live by the Spirit or belong to the Spirit. He says, you that live by the Spirit, you that are belonging to the Spirit, when you see a brother or sister fall in a sin, you need to go to them. Because why? What's the Holy Spirit's desire that's in you that you belong to? Restoration, to bring them back to an active standing with Christ. It has nothing to do with their salvation. It doesn't mean somebody falls and loses their salvation. No, they're still 100% saved. Because our salvation is not in what we do, but what Christ did for us to the cross. It's his death, burial, resurrection that brings me eternal life. Not how well I can get up when I fall. Not how little I fall. So many people think, well, if you fall a lot, then you must not be saved. I don't know about that. I'm saying I'm saved because of Jesus Christ and my confession of faith in him alone. But once I receive Christ, now I live this thing called the Christian life, and it's really hard. It's hard to be a Christian today. So when I fall, what do I need? I need someone to help pick me up, but I have to be willing to get up. I have to be willing to receive the help 
and to get up. We must be on guard from judging superficially and hypocritically. We must never hold non-Christians to Christian standards, but we also must be passionate about restoring those that have fallen if they are ready to get up. If somebody tells you, I don't want to get up, more or less, in this illustration, then what do you do? You pray for them. You serve them. You love them. You're gracious to them. But you're just, you're still there for them. But you never condone whatever the fault is. You never say it's okay. And I believe as a follower of Christ, we can love someone in a fault and still not say the fault is okay. I believe we can do that by his grace and his understanding. If you belong to the Spirit, then your love for the church should lead you to doing all that is necessary to help one who has fallen. Finally, we're not going to get into it too much, but I find it interesting that in Matthew chapter 7, it is after this section on judging with right motives and making sure our own heart is right first before Jesus brings up the topic of prayer. I believe Jesus was showing us that when we get our hearts right and our eyes right and clean, we then will pray with power and a pure heart. I don't think it's coincidence that after this topic on judging, Jesus gets into the prayer and the golden rule. Why would he do that? Because he's showing us, listen, we need to get our hearts right with him. Not a works thing. If you're saved in Christ, you're saved in Christ. But as I live this life, I need daily renewing, daily refreshing. I'm going back to that well of water to get another cup, to get another cup. Why? Because I just enjoy spending time with him. I enjoy being in his presence. And as I'm doing that, my mind is made new, my heart is purified, and my eyes are clean and pure. I find it amazing he uses the eye as the illustrative point with the beam and the moat. Why? Because culture says, poets have said, and even the Bible says, the eyes are the gateway to the soul. Jesus' point is, if you've fallen in your eyes, then you're going to fall in your heart and in your spirit. And let's get that right with him. And so here's what I want to do. We're going to have an invitation. And I appreciate your faithfulness and your attentiveness. I know it went a little long today, but I want to encourage you with this. If you've been judging someone superficially, hypocritically, at a distance, maybe you need to come this morning and bend a knee and say, God, I'm sorry for that, or repent of that. I pray you would just show me what you would have for me. Maybe you've been holding non-Christians to Christian standards in your life, and you need to realize that that's not, that's not really what's needed. They just need Jesus, and so we're going to give them Jesus. Maybe you want to come and pray, or maybe you know someone that has fallen into a fault, and your desire is for them to be restored, and you pray for them, and you want to see them lifted up, but maybe they're not ready yet. Maybe they're still content to just lay on the ground. Maybe you would come and bow a knee and say, God, I just pray that you would give me wisdom and what to say to them. Help me to help them up in whatever way I can. Help me to be patient with them and not lose my patience with them. Whatever God is doing, I just pray that you would respond to him. And then finally, maybe you're here and you've used this verse, judge not lest you be judged, because you're living in a way that you know displeases your heavenly father through Christ. You know God has been convicting you through the Holy Spirit. You need to make a change. Stop using his word for your own glory and your own gain and submit to him and say, God, I'm going to receive your love anew today. I'm going to receive your grace anew today, your forgiveness. I pray you'd help me to walk in that forgiveness, not trusting in myself, but trusting in you for all things. Whatever God is doing, would you just respond to him? I'm going to ask that we bow in prayer before we go to invitation. And I pray that you just respond to whatever he's doing in your life this morning. And as you've been seeking him, that he will reveal himself to you today. Father, thank you for this morning. Father, in this area, there is much debate and confusion. Lord, how we judge, when we judge, what does it look like? I pray that we would take these principles from your word. We would apply them to our lives. That those of us who belong to the Holy Spirit, meaning those who are saved, those who have trusted Christ, belong to your spirit. I pray that we would live in a way that would glorify you, Lord. That we would demonstrate towards our Christian brothers and sisters both accountability, yes, and grace. I don't believe those two are mutually exclusive. Father, I believe that we can love someone in a relationship as far as a friendship and share with them the truth of your word with a clean heart and a pure heart, confessing first anything that is in us, desiring to be used of you as a tool of your word and a tool of your Holy Spirit to speak life back into them. And so, Father, help us to be renewed today in understanding these things. Father, if anyone in here has been using your word to justify sin, I pray that you would show them by the work of your Holy Spirit that they can confess that, repent of it, find forgiveness, and walk anew in this life. Father, thank you that when we fall, when we rise, and when we walk this life, we do that under the, the power of the Holy Spirit. 
we can rise up in the Holy Spirit. We walk in the power of the Spirit. And I thank you that no matter where we are in our life, that if we know Christ is our Lord and personal Savior, that we will never lose that salvation. That you hold on to us. So for the one here in this room that has fallen, that has given into a fault, a temptation, I pray that they would know that your grace is real and able to restore them, to lift them up, that you are right there for them. You've never left them. You're right there for them. I pray they would pray that prayer and say, God, I'm sorry. I turn from it and I turn to you. And they begin to live that life again that you've had for them, that abundant life. Father, thank you for all that you're doing in our lives. Your grace and your word are so powerful. I pray we would apply it, what we've learned. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning? As these guys lead us in a song of invitation, whatever God is leading you in, would you respond to him and allow him to speak to you? Come and pray. Don't wait. Come and pray. If you know someone that needs prayer, come and pray.